Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. Welcome again to P.I.C. Classified. I want to remind you, uh, everybody, of the two important upcoming conferences, one on each coast, California Association of Licensed Investigators, June 8th to the 10th. That's coming up next month. Discounted registration ends today, folks, today, May 11th. Go to Cali, C-A-L-I hyphen P-I dot org. And then the National Association of Legal Investigators, the same days, June 8th to the 10th, their 50th anniversary conference in Alexandria, Virginia. For that one, go to Nally Online, N-A-L-I-O-N-L-I-N-E dot org. Two outstanding educational opportunities. I have a real treat for you today. My guest is Dr. Laura, Laura Petler. She is, uh, well, I'll let her tell you what she is. Hello, Dr. Laura. Hi, how are you? I'm very good, very good. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited about this show, and I want to hear all about what you do. So um, why don't you tell us? I know that you started out as a district attorney investigator. Why don't you take us from there? Yes, well, thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to work with you and and your audience and uh, kind of fill them in about my neck of the woods. I did start out after graduate school in the DA's office in North Carolina as an investigator, and I got that job because I was um, a musician, a professional musician for, <laughs> for many, many, many years, and I was performing um, a new song I had written at a National Night Out uh, event in 2005, and I met the district attorney. Um he was there along this. with several <laughs> chiefs of police, yes, and I was singing my new song, Trucks Are For Girls, and the PA <laughs> met me and said, you know, I hear you do this, I hear you do that, you know, you've got a very different skill set. I said, yes, sir, I do, I, you know, I just opened my new company and things of that nature, and he said, well, I've got a cold case I think I want you to take a look at, and it was the, it was a case of a child homicide. It was a situation where they were trying to determine what weapon might have been used to strike the child. And to date, they did not have anybody that had figured that out. So he hired me to review that case, and I did. And I was able to figure out what weapon was most consistent that that a child was most likely struck with. And presented my findings to the State Bureau and also to the DA's office and to the local PD, of which the case was in its jurisdiction. And then they were so shocked, I guess, but by me being able to discover such a thing, the DA decided to um, create a pilot program. He wanted a, a crime scene reconstruction and behavioral analysis program embedded within his, his administration. And we piloted it for three months, of which I worked many, many homicides for him during that time. And then I got a contract to work full-time for him beginning in 2007. At that point, I took over uh, all the pending homicides plus 
was um, appointed as the director of the district cold case task force. So uh-huh. I was doing reconstructions and hot cases that we would just have occur, but I was also in charge of 31 pending cold cases and working those as well, doing all of the, um, not only the, the physical evidence reconstructions, but also all of the behavioral analysis for all of them as well. So um, had you already received your PhD at that point? I had not. I I finished my master's degree. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology and thought I wanted to work in the prisons and decided that that was probably not the right path for me. So I spent Uh my early years um, working in mental health and group homes and things like that, learning about normal behavior and abnormal behavior. And Mm -hmm. then in graduate school, I studied a split between physical evidence and forensic science and forensic psychology, death investigation, behavioral analysis. So I I split it. Um, And that's when I, after I graduated from, with that degree, I got the job with the DA's office. Yeah, it was actually a perfect, like a perfect storm set up for you at the DA's office, it sounds like. It, it was, and I, uh, it was great because I learned a lot about prosecution, and what we do in the field as investigators is, is, you know, for probable cause towards making an arrest, it's very, very different than what can actually be presented in trial and what gets mm-hmm. to the jury. There's just a huge difference between an arrest and getting a case to a jury, so... Um, I, I was grateful for the opportunity to learn from the DA's office because it really heightened my awareness of, of the importance of documentation in the field and heightened my awareness of uh, several other aspects of investigation that are critical to not only the arrest, but also the case just following through all the way to the jury. Mm-hmm. And you like uh, what criminal defense investigators do on the private side. Uh, you don't process the crime scene, you are looking at everything, the discovery and the uh, uh, the photographs and all of that after the fact, correct? Yes, and in my in my training, I have processed crime scenes as a graduate student with um, the education I received there, and so mm-hmm. I did do quite a bit of CSI work, and I have processed lots of crime scenes on behalf of the DA's office in partnership with the agencies that were working the cases, Mm. primarily because um, we were in a rural area and many people did not ever have an opportunity that were law enforcement officers to work or to go to classes that taught them how to photograph bloodstains or string bloodstains or do things Mm -hmm. like that. And so I would work hand-in-hand with them and teach them how to do those things. Uh, oh, that's great. Yeah, so I did process a lot of crime scenes. At this point, I don't process a lot of crime scenes anymore. Um, I typically go in as a consultant and look at everything and go from there as far as making recommendations, you know, to our clients for what we think, you know, we might glean from the crime scene, but then we mostly work cold cases, so... Uh, sometimes the scenes are still available and sometimes they're not. Most often they're not. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, you, you, I know there's one cold case. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, uh, the homicide of Harold Gentry. Yes. Um, what happened Harold with that? Harold Gentry was, yes, it's a fascinating case. It, it was a case that um, really was perplexing to the community back in 1986 in Norwood, North Carolina. And Harold Gentry had been married to a woman named Betty. And Betty and Harold, their marriage fell apart. It was never really a good marriage because there were always fights over money and things of that nature. Harold was a quiet man. He never bothered anybody, always showed up for work, never missed a day in 20 years. And on the day of his death, of course, he did not show up for work, which led to the discovery of his body at the house where he lived. And he was shot multiple times and the house was found ransacked. His wife, Betty, was out of town at the time in Marietta, Georgia, getting tired mm. to put on her dual truck. When she was notified, she came back, and I think people definitely suspected her because she had been um, soliciting the death of her husband and the, the murder of her husband to some other people around town all of which you didn't take her seriously at first. One oh, person great. ended up taking... One person did take her seriously and reported it to law enforcement, but unfortunately they weren't able to substantiate anything. There was nothing they could do at that, at that time. And then Harold was killed. And the case went cold. They didn't have hmm. any suspects in that, at that time except her, and they couldn't build the case around her. I got the case in 2007... And had no idea that when, uh, over the eight months it took me to organize it, I would discover that Betty had five dead husbands and one dead son. Good grief. Often in domestic violence homicide, if, of which I am an expert in that area, oftentimes we do have um, a, a domestic violence homicide offender kill a victim and get away with it, stage the crime scene as one thing or the other, get mm-hmm. away with it, and then unfortunately it leads to the death of a second victim, and, it, you know, it's, it's a sad thing because they weren't caught up the first time. They turn into more or less serial offenders at that point mm-hmm. and kill mm-hmm. on a different date at a different time to a different victim, but possibly for the same reason, most often money. Amazing. And then, then then, she passed away before she was actually able to stand <laughs> trial. Um, she did pass away. It was very, very difficult to accept her death because um, five men connected to her died. Uh, the first husband, we do not have any anything to demonstrate that it could have been her who killed him, but I would never rule that out simply because she has characteristics of borderline personality disorder, and they tend to revisit relationships quite often. They like to keep several balls in the air. So when one's relationship falls apart, they can fall back on another one. So it wouldn't be unlikely, it wouldn't be uncommon with that type of disorder for her to have revisited many years later um, Clarence Malone, who she filed for divorce against citing abuse. Her second husband's body has never been found. 
Um, to this day, I, I do not know what happened to him or where he is. Her third husband, I believe she shot and killed her third husband. He has two gunshot wounds kind of under his arm on the side of his rib cage, um, in that area of his body, the side of his body, and she called it in as a suicide. It has no earmarks of a suicide and all yeah, right. earmarks of <laughs> That's a, a strange homicide. way to commit suicide. Right. <laughs> right. And then, of course, serial gentry was number four, staged robbery. So then when I worked the case, I was able to work with a detective and interview several new people, uh, do several new interviews that were people that were involved originally, and we were able to get probable cause to a restaurant solicitation to commit murder of her fourth husband, of which she was never tried for and died before she stood trial. So we did arrest I, her and we did put her in jail I ha- for a I have a while. Couple, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I have a couple oh, no. more questions, but we need to take a quick commercial break, Laura. Stay okay. with us, folks. All right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Crime scene expert Dr. Laura Petler is here with me today, and we were just talking about one of her cold cases uh, involving a woman by the name of Betty Newbar, who looks like she killed a whole bunch of people. So what what was the most significant evidence that you found uh, that would convict her? Well, um, she was charged with solicitation to commit murder, so the, the testimonial evidence 
that basically supported that arrest warrant came from witnesses in that were involved in 1986 who knew something about her having gone around and asked either them personally or people they knew about, you know, contracting to kill her husband. She was, she was not secretive about it. She sort of went to people that she knew through other people and said, you know, will you kill my husband? Will you kill my husband? Until she found someone that, <laughs> that actually did. And that person, unfortunately, has never been arrested. Um, the person is very well aware that I, I am very clear on what happened and that uh-huh. that person is involved. And for that reason, it is still considered an open case. Now, it's not uh-huh. a case that's being currently worked by the law enforcement agency of which jurisdiction, you know, is, is where it is. But the stuff, there's only one suspect in the case. And I know that I'm right. Uh, and uh, that person also knows that I'm right and will not talk to anybody. And when people do that, it's... Um, it can be illustrious of something to hide. And in this case, uh-huh. it, it absolutely is. So I will never give up. I never give up on, on my cold cases. And I, I hope that someday relationships change and time goes on where the people that know what the shooter did in Harold Gentry's death, they want to go ahead and get that off their chest and they go ahead and talk. And uh-huh. um, the case can come to resolution for the victim and his family. That would be great. That's a, that would be a fabulous service. Yes. Uh, that's the would. hardest part is not knowing. Well, yes. this takes us right into our topic, Laura, that uh, we wanted to talk about today, and that's staged crime scenes. And and you're saying it it could it's spreading. The staged crime scenes are spreading. It it appears so, Francie, because we have a tremendous amount of real crime, you know, true crime television, but also fictionalized television like Criminal Minds and um, NCIS and CSI and things like that that influence people to where, you know, they those shows are written by people who have worked in the field. So while there is a fictional element, there is also a realistic element because sometimes the, the writers base their cases off of real cases that are uh-huh. portrayed in a fictional sense. So people watch that kind of material, and it appears that it's influencing the way they choose to stage crime scenes in some cases. It's not all the time, but the media is definitely influencing it. I do a lot of true crime television, and the industry, um, it depends on the show and the format of the show, but some shows are more produced than other shows where they're, it's a very clean, polished production and some other shows do not have such a, a clean, polished appearance to them. They have more of a dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so you... So essentially what we're doing, we're, just, we're, tra- we're training an entire population about how to kill people and cover it up. I think that... You know, I think that it, when you think about a normal person, not a person that studies death or works in a coroner's office like I do or works for a law enforcement agency with a high volume of homicides or death in their area, I think that most people 
it's very uncommon for them to see a suicide. It's very uncommon for them to have seen what an actual burglary looks like. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, any kind of uh, staged sexual homicide with an abduction, rape, torture, underlying theme to it. Things like that. They don't know what that actually looks like. So when they go to stage it, the crime scene is a reflection of the image that's in the person's head. Mm-hmm. And com- combined with what I call enviro-socioculturalism, which is basically my fancy term for everything that the, in- the experiences of the person of a stager, of an offender, play a role in the way they choose to stage a crime scene in many, many cases. Genetically, we're born with behaviors that are literally biological and genetic, and then our Uh experiences shape our personalities over time. So human beings are are evolving constantly from birth to death. And in, in considering that idea, crime scenes are staged based on consistency of what works and what doesn't work. That's why with a lot of staged crime scenes and a lot of these offenders, you see an accidental gunshot wound the first time, you'll see an accidental gunshot wound the second time. Uh, like mm-hmm. with Mike Peterson in North Carolina, 20 years ago, a woman that he was involved with, there was a neighbor of his, fell down the stairs and died, and then 20 years later, his wife allegedly fell down the stairs and died. Hmm. Same M.O. It's, it depends on what works. Mm-hmm. It really depends on what works for them. Sometimes they switch it up. Most of Betty Newmar's husbands are gunshot wounds, at least three out of five. Interesting. Yeah. So it really, make, yeah, it makes it, sense. It does. And staging is, um, is not complicated. It's a reflection, quite frankly, of, of the person's imagery in his or her mind, combined with their enviro-socioculturalism and how the environment, society, and culture influences that person. And then on top of that, the personality and what experiences we have in life that shape our personality over time, all of those those things combined, plus occupation, what does this person have access to? If it's a construction worker, for example, you know, we might find a body buried in concrete under a foundation of a house. They do things that are not too far outside their normal behavior, the same drives that drive them in their everyday behavior are the same drives that you see in pattern form in rape and murder. And then, of course, when, in my neck of the woods, we see them in staging. So if you have a domestic violence offender who, who preys on women and attacks women, but then you have a victim in a business deal, for example, that domestic violence offender will oftentimes demonstrate the pattern of abuse in the domestic violence relationship on the business partner victim when the victim hmm. has nothing to do with domestic violence, but it's a learned pattern of behavior on behalf of the offender. That's how he abuses indeed the domestic violence. That's how he's going to kill. So what I hear, Laura, that you're saying is that um, staged, staged murders have personalities. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. that's interesting. That's a fascinating thought. Yes. Uh, the offender is reflected in the crime scene and also his intelligence level. You know, I can tell when I look at these scenes, which, what's a sophisticated scene versus 
an unsophisticated scene. Someone that de- demonstrates, you know, a lot of intelligence uh, versus the latter. And also, you know, we deal with something called cognitive overload when we're dealing with crime scene stagers. And that's where they get tripped up, Francie. They don't know how to manage all of the goings-on at the same time. And sometimes they drop the ball. It's very difficult for them to maintain all of those lives at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, what is the most outrageous stage crime scene you've ever dealt with? Oh, my gosh. <sighs> you know, I'm not even sure. I'm, I'm not even sure. I have a lot of staged suicides of female victims, gunshot wounds to the head, found in the marital residence in the master bedroom instead. I seem to have a lot of those, and some of those are so poorly staged that, you know, you can just tell that the offender just had no clue what a staged suicide, you know, what a real suicide looks like. Um, I really can't think of what the most outrageous one would be. We, we deal with so many of them. Um, none of them... Murder has taught me that people are capable of anything, so nothing mm-hmm. really shocked me. And w- would you say that the most percentage of cases would be suicides, or are they, you know... Home like invasion sh- seems to be quite popular, and it also depends on the sample that you're looking at. So if we were to take a sample from Canada versus um, Africa versus the United States, we're going to get higher numbers of one or the other in different areas just because of that enviro-socioculturalism aspect. When you look at the, when you look, for example, at the Oscar Pistorius case out of South Africa, you might Uh remember that he was called the Blade Runner. Right. And he killed his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. In that case, and I actually just got back from South Africa um, in March, and I was Uh over there working with the team that was the team who processed the scene and uh, the investigators who were the Pistorius investigators. So firsthand knowledge directly from them, you know, they presented the case to me while I was there working. And in that case, for example, for example, it is staged as a home invasion. The reason he chose home invasion is because South Africa has a tremendous number of home invasion and what they are called, something that calls farm attack. And that is something very, very specific to their environment, their society, and their culture. So the best choice for Oscar Pistorius, when they were having an argument and she ran into the bathroom and was trying to get away from him, and he shot her through the door, the best way he thought to get a, to, to get out of that and to cover it up was to argue that he thought that that was a, an intruder because mm-hmm. it is so common. I, I can't even tell you how common it is in South Africa. I don't know what their actual numbers are, but that works for him. Mm-hmm. So in, in other areas, you might find um, it's related to a hobby. Uh, it can be related to, like in Harold Henthorne, 
he killed his first wife. It's alleged that he did. It's not proven, but they believe that he did. The investigators in that case. And then this, his second wife, Tony, he took her on a hike in the Rocky Mountains and then pushed her off a cliff. And he was convicted of her murder. He used his environment to stage that crime. You're not mm-hmm. going to be able to stage somebody falling off a cliff in the plains of the United States. Mm-hmm. In Iowa, yeah, for sure. you're not going to be able to do that. So it has a lot to do with the environment, how they choose to stage. It's geographical. Fa- you know, it's, it's really fascinating. And, and um, what... When you go, when you start looking into these, Laura, what piques your your gut reaction that it's a it's staged? Um, I actually don't use any kind of gut reaction. I use the, the science, and I created something for it called victim centered death investigation methodology, and okay. we do all victim centered investigations at Laura Petler and Associates. And so everything we do revolves around the, the, the foundation of the victim. And at the, at the very first step of victim-centered death investigation methodology, there's something called the Crime Scene Staging Trilogy. The Crime Scene Staging Trilogy I built as a result of my dissertation and additional research, which found that conflict is the number one preceding variable that we see in offenders who stage crime scenes. Because it's a function of the victim-offender relationship, and then mm-hmm. on top of that, the conflict between the victim and the offender, conflict is the first prong of the trilogy. The second prong of the trilogy is victim discovery. We discovered in this research that um, crime scene stagers most often discover their own victims they keep control. And then the third prong is verbal staging. And verbal staging means what do they do physically to alter and manipulate the evidence in the, in the crime scene? And then they call 911 to basically create the verbal story that, it, that they're illustrating. They're telling the narrative that goes with the illustration of the actual physical evidence. So when we have all three prongs ring true, when we arrive at a crime scene, who's in conflict with this victim? Uh, the ex-husband. Who discovered mm-hmm. the victim? The ex-husband. Who called mm-hmm. 911? The ex-husband. Mm-hmm. Okay, what did he say on 911? Said that he came over here and found his uh, ex-wife dead that they had been arguing on the phone. He came over here to check on her. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is a huge red flag where we then raise the question. We don't know if it's staged at that point. We're only at step one. But what we can do is based on the research, because we know that victim discovery, verbal staging, and conflict are our three most common variables that all crime scene stagers share, or even most of them, we can raise the red flag and say, hey, is this crime scene staged? Could this crime scene be staged? And then proceed accordingly. What that does is it safeguards us from, hopefully, from having a cold case. And if indeed the case is, if the scene is staged and we do have a violent offender on our hands, it gives us the ability to move in that type of direction as a suspicious death 
that was unplanned and uh, potentially, you know, if he's responsible or she's responsible for the murder of that person, staged as a suicide or staged as something else, that person can then be apprehended and doesn't remain in society with an opportunity to reoffend. Uh-huh. So that's uh-huh. kind of how we do it. Um, so we use science. We don't use... The days really of gut feeling, to be honest with you, are gone. Traditional homicide investigation is gone. However, some of it is embedded into what we call now scientific homicide investigation. So that's where we're moving toward. The, the you know forensic science comes on the chopping block, but there are a lot of things that is good about it. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely controversial. But um, when you combine it in context with the behavioral evidence, and, you know, never use one or the other. But sometimes you only have one or the other. You right. know, sometimes you don't have domestic violence on the sides that are staged. It's in the marital residence. Fingerprints are expected. DNA is expected. All these things are expected to be in the house of two people that live there together. So what right. you are left with is the physical evidence. And conflict, um, my model is what we call conflict resolution benefit tears down murder in three simple steps. Who's in conflict with the victim? How does the victim, how does the offender use murder to resolve the conflict? And so, Mm. say, for example, it's an argument. You can oftentimes see a reflection of an argument and a struggle in the crime scene of the dead victim. And then the third prong is, who benefits from the victim's death? You might have five But when you ask that question, who benefits from the victim's death, only the true killer is truly going to benefit. Maybe it's an insurance policy. Maybe the Mm -hmm. conflict is debt. And in order to resolve that problem, the victim needs to be dead so that the offender can cash in the insurance policy and therefore benefiting from the victim's death. So murder can be pared down to conflict resolution benefit. Almost any murder. It's very simple. Laura, we need to, this is fabulous, We need, but we need to take a quick break. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, right in the middle of, of your presentation there. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest is Dr. Laura Petler. On it. She's an expert on crime scene analysis. And, Laura, we were just really talking about your your whole uh, uh, protocol, the victim-centered death investigation methodology. And you have yes. a book out called Crime Scene Staging Dynamics and Homicide. Um, is I, I'm assuming this is on Amazon that people could buy it, yes. buy it at their leisure? Yes, they can buy it on, on Amazon. And it's the very first book in the world on crime scene staging, ironically. Really? Yes. I mean, you'd think that people would, be, would have been writing about books on staging for hundreds of years at this point. Um, but that's not the case. And so I took it on as writing the first book in the world on crime scene staging. The book has done very, very well. Um, we've reached thousands of people with the book to build awareness about this very, very important safety public safety issue, and um, we're thrilled with it. It is, it is a first log on the fire type book, Francie. Mm-hmm. So over time, as research continues and we continue to glean more information from stagers we study, some of the themes of the book will remain constant, while other themes in the book could wane or could change or could be obsoleted altogether. So it definitely got us started, but, um, you know, I think it's some good points in it. We continue to build models and study as we move forward. So that's sort of my, uh, my spiel about the book. <laughs> yeah, well, tell me about this uh, Crime Scene Staging Awareness Initiative on Facebook. What's that about? The initiative we started in 2014 was to build awareness of crime scene staging, and we went on tour for the book, launched in Rome, Italy in February of 2015 after creating the initiative, and we went around throughout the United States and, and also abroad handing out bracelets that said crime scene staging awareness on them, and then also pins to remember victims. It's a red ribbon. And we, we were able to reach thousands of people on that book tour. Um, we ended the book tour in July 2016 with 56 stops over 18 months, which was a lot. We funded it at Laura Cutler and & Associates, and we were lucky enough to have 14 stops funded by the National Institute of Justice. So they jumped on board and helped us with 14 out of the 56 stops to help us build awareness. So now what we do is called the Crime Scene Staging Symposium, and it's a hmm. three-day symposium that we teach nationwide and also abroad, uh, which what I was teaching in South Africa. And we teach about victim relationship with the offender. We teach about 
the red flags of staging so that, that officers can detect it very quickly. We also, of course, teach the methodology, and um, we, we teach about 911 call analysis and statement analysis and the tools that investigators need that they often don't get anywhere else toward identifying these, this very specific genre of homicides. Fascinating. And so uh, I see that there's something called the Kaleidoscope Crime Scene Reconstruction System, something yes, you created. Yes, I invented the Kaleidoscope System, and it's based on my work in the field uh, doing crime scene reconstruction. So more or less, it's, it is a laser system that combines bloodstain trajectories with bullet trajectories that can all be reconstructed using lasers all at the same time. So you understand the blood stains and how the blood left the source of blood, like the victim's head or something, the victim's arm, um, in compilation with how, the, uh, how a bullet goes through the air, what path did that bullet take through the air, and then at what point did it impact the victim, and then create the ability for blood to then spatter. So, so is it... Does- does, this, tool. does that replace the string process? Yes, it does. Okay. Huh. Interesting. Fascinating. I love this. I'm very tired of very droopy strings, Francie. I really like my reconstructions to look clean and crisp and, and very detail-oriented, very accurate, as accurate as, you know, a glimpse of the events can get because, of course, currency reconstruction is an approximate estimation of what happened at best. So we do the best that we can. But the Kaleidoscope system, we have 12 distributors worldwide. It's sold in more than 30 countries. And um, we, we are very happy that people all over the world like the system. And uh, while we're at it, Laura, why don't you give uh, your website? Because I think people okay, are going to be interested in contacting you. Oh, thank you. you. Um, people are more than welcome to visit me at lauratetler.com. Uh, even if you just put my name in Google, it's very easy to find my website, laurapetler.com. And then my company, Laura Petler and Associates, our website is lpateam.com. And then our school, the LPA International Forensics Institute, which is based in Monroe, North Carolina, is lpaisi.com. So we actually have three websites. And, wow. you know, you can follow me on the social media at Dr. Laura Petler. Do you have any spare time, Laura? <laughs> no. <laughs> it doesn't sound like No. It. I was just telling you, oh, you're somebody just that I've been gone 49 days or out of the first six months of this year doing true crime television and um, cold cases. So I'm involved in lots of uh, television projects, uh, of which I call edutainment combination of um, education and entertainment. So I enjoy that very much. But this year it's been inundated with um, appearances all over. Um, I'll be on Dr. Oz on July 25th. And oh, really? uh, yeah, you can catch True Crime Tuesday and the episode that we did with him recently on, on I don't know what channel it comes on anywhere, but uh, it's different all over the country. But uh, it'll air on July 25th, and he does True Crime Tuesdays now. Interesting. And yeah. are you still singing? <laughs> I retired from professional music, 
But I have a new web series coming out in the middle of June called Notorious, True Crime Stories with Laura Petler. And I actually did write the music for Notorious. So I'm still writing and still recording it. And my daughter performed the song that I wrote, the theme song for Notorious. And um, I wrote the music and the lyrics, and um, she performed the song. So I am still doing music, but in a different capacity now, more for, um, you know, things like Notorious and things like that. I'm not actually out performing uh, vocal performance and doing any of that anymore. Amazing. <laughs> You're an amazing, amazing woman. <laughs> so I, let's Thank go you. through the courses that you offer, because I think, uh, uh, so wh- where do you offer your courses, Laura? We do two different things, Francie. We, uh, we have um, the LPA headquarters is in Monroe, North Carolina, uh-huh. and we have a classroom there. We keep the class sizes small. It's the size of 10, and we offer all kinds of courses there. I usually book myself to teach one course at the headquarters a month. And then uh, LPA Associates, um, we're all experts in different things from crime scene to courtroom. Mm-hmm. Everybody takes a month and offers another different type of class. I teach primarily uh, the staging symposium in Timicide, which is my word for domestic violence homicide. So I teach a three-day intimate partner homicide investigation course. I also teach a cold case class, victimology, statement analysis, and crime scene reconstruction. So that's really where I stay. And then we have interview and interrogation taught by an associate. Um, We have entomology being brought in by another company. So we do a lot of coroner classes. Um, We also do first responder classes for domestic violence and patrol. So... We have a very, very wide range of courses we offer on the ground. And then our online school, we also offer specific stage classes like suicidology. We also offer investigating stage suicides by firearm. And a myriad of other courses that are available at the LPAIFI.com in online format. Nice. So if somebody wanted to attend one of those classes, um, they can find all the information available on your website? Yes, they can. They can do that, and the office number is also listed on the website, and they can call the office for any questions. You know, Laura, you may just see me in one of your classes. <laughs> that would be great, Francie. We'd love to have you. <laughs> this sounds fascinating. It really Thank sounds you. like... Uh, sounds like just real solid, meaty kind of training, you know. Uh, it's very so hands is it, on. Is it also hands on? It is also hands on. And our entomology class that's coming in, I, I actually live on a farm, so the uh, course in portion is going to be held at the headquarters, and then students will actually go out to the farm to do all the bug work <laughs> and play with the bugs. So, huh? <laughs> yeah, to do all of that. And um, we're actually working on getting a new building right now to have, um, to build a crime scene room and like a, an actual like apartment to train, to train people in. And so that's coming. And then we hope to build some extensions of that in some other states as well. So, we are working on expanding at Laura Peller and Associates to be able to reach more people that, you know, that really need training that don't have the ability to go to other places. Maybe it's only a three-man department or something. Exactly. They really need something in their area. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, this this is just a fascinating offering. I'm just so glad that uh, you've had the initiative and the training behind you and the ability to, to put this together. It's just, uh, it's really refreshing. It's new. It's uh, it's exciting. And, Thank you. Uh, I think it's just uh, uh, fabulous. I'm so glad I had an opportunity to talk to you about this today. And I appreciate the opportunity to come on your show and explain to people a little bit about crime scenes and cold cases and um, staging because domestic violence is typically that relationship is where we see staging most often and there are resources available to victims. And so I would encourage any victims that are, any people that if you think you are a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to someone who can help you because um, it doesn't get better. It always and no, it worse, and we want to help you. We want yeah. to help you get into a safe situation, and there are people who are equipped and professional to be able to help you do that, so please reach out. It's really good advice. And so, again, folks, uh, this book is uh, amazing, Crime Scene Staging Dynamics in Homicide Cases, and Laura says that her... Uh, Tell me what it's called again. Uh, the uh, Victim-Centered Death Investigation Methodology. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, welcome. the Victim-Centered Death Investigation Methodology is in that book. Yep, and last I think three said chapters. The last three chapters. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great to have you, you on PIs Declassified. Thank you for having me, Francie. It's a pleasure. And for the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. And Laura is one. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 